It's WKX on the morning. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead. Time for a weekly segment with the New Hampshire Bulletin, NewHampshireBulletin.com to get more from them. This week, reporter Ethan DeWitt is back. Welcome. Glad to be back. So let's start off with uh, State Restaurant Relief Fund is continuing to see a slow take up. It's kind of shocking how low the numbers have been at the, the businesses that are trying to claim some of these funds. Yeah, so the state put up a program. There's been a lot of relief, you know, over the last two years for restaurants. The latest program the state has put up is called the Local Restaurant Infrastructure Investment Funds Program. And the idea of the program is it allows local restaurants uh, to get up to $15,000 to get reimbursed for any expenditures they made since November that relate to anything they had to Dude, for COVID. So it could be um, equipment, infrastructure, technology purchases. You know, it could be more tablets to help with ordering. It could be HVAC systems. It could be additional tables to do outdoor seating. And the idea is that they get uh, reimbursement for that. They apply for it. There was $3 million that was set aside in federal funds. Uh, and the deadline was this mid-July, I believe it was July 13th. And what has been interesting is that despite this money being right there, um, not that many restaurants have actually applied for it. And as of this week, only 10% of that $3 million has been spent. So about $300,000 has been spent so far. That leaves 2.6 and change million dollars left to be rewarded. So um, there are restaurants, I've talked to them. There's, uh, you know, some examples of restaurants and cafes that are taking advantage of this money. Um, one, Blue Harbor Coffee, I talked to them there in Hampton. Uh, they use it to buy a new roaster. And one reason they did that is because uh, they were changing their business model during COVID. They were doing a lot more takeout. They were supplying their co- their their coffee to a lot more places. And because of that, they were roasting a lot and they needed a larger capacity roaster. Uh, And they were able to get one. They had one that was six uh, pounds and now they have one that's 25 pounds. And they were able to use this fund to pay for that. And, uh, you know, this was a a roaster they'd already bought, but the funds helped them uh, reimburse for that. So that's the kind of example of how the program is meant to be used. Other examples I used are, you know, software to allow for more takeout. You know, maybe a restaurant didn't have that capacity and and now they do and they can get reimbursed for that. Uh, $15,000 can go a, a pretty long way with this sort of thing. So, again, there are lots of case examples and there's about 30 restaurants that have so far applied and, and been granted this money, but a lot of the vast majority of restaurants in the state have not, which is perplexing. Yeah. I mean, is it partially a lot of the businesses folded that were already that desperate and were so late in the COVID situation at this point? Well, so that could be part of it. I mean, yeah, it's, it's definitely hard to account for the restaurants that don't exist anymore. I think also part of it is it's the busy season right now. Um, this is uh, a kind of a, a tailored program. It's not like the PPP program, which as you recall, was sort of a loan program to go towards keeping employees hired uh, during the early months of the pandemic when everything was shutting down and businesses had incentive to lay off workers. That was sort of money that everybody applied for because it was so broad in use. This is a bit more specific in uh, use cases for the money. Um, And the 
the spending period has to have been between November and July. You can't, uh, you couldn't apply for it if you, you know, spent something two years ago or three years ago. So there were some limitations. Uh, so that might be part of it. Um, and, you know, there's just been, that's been one of the theories is that uh, restaurants are really kind of stressed right now. And they're mostly worried about labor and not so much about, um, you know, some of these other expenses. Of course, the state would say that's what the money is here for, to offset the money challenges you might be having with labor. So you can, you know, get some of that equipment reimbursed and then maybe put that money into, you know, uh, hiring more people if you need it or raising your wages so that you can attract more people. So it's all obviously one big system, but um, it's, yeah, it's perplexing as, as to why. And the deadline has gone and it is unclear whether the state's going to try to uh, do another round of applications, try to get more of these restaurants to apply or rededicate this $2.6 million to something else, maybe something else, some other program for restaurants with remains to be seen. Yeah. It seems like it needs to be um, put differently in some way, like it, and then evangelized extensively to see it actually being used. Cause I mean, there's so many different ways that businesses can use funds like this, but they don't necessarily think of it. They're so busy. Like you were talking about, they're so busy with, they got labor shortages. They can only dream about having the time to consider how they can expand their business when they don't even have enough people to deal with what they already have. And uh, if you're going to expand the, like the, that coffee roaster company was, was very lucky with, with that. They it's like, Oh, we can just improve this. It's most businesses can't just buy a new coffee roaster and be good to go. It's very labor intensive in the food service industry. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, there is a shortage of labor that applies to contractors who might install these things that you want to buy. You might want an extension in your restaurant that would be covered by this. Uh, if you if you were building an extension that had to do with, uh, you know, more social distancing or uh, providing outdoor orders, for instance, but then you, you have to find the people to actually build that. You have to find the supplies. There might be a back order for a certain uh, item that you want. So, you know, those are all hurdles. And that's not just with this program. There are other programs, for instance, uh, school infrastructure programs, where that's also a concern. Uh, you know, the money may be going uh, to these entities and this is federal money and it's kind of, it's, it's flowing very freely these days, but there may not be, uh, you know, the equipment or the, the labor or the supply on the other end of that money to actually use it quickly. Yeah, I mean, as someone who works on the IT and audiovisual side of the world, it's good luck finding anything. Like, like I know of uh, one institution that there there were no AV upgrades over the summer, which is the time when you do them because it could take a month to actually get everything programmed and working correctly. And they're like, oh, maybe we can do it during winter break. And this, this continues to happen over a full fiscal year. It totally hoses the budget for, uh, for schools to be able to figure out what they need to do and let alone the business side of it, too. Too, if they, they got conference rooms and yeah. such. I mean, there's no silicon chips out there to use. Yeah. And and so one restaurant owner, one cafe owner I talked to, he actually did get money uh, through this program. Um, he He's the owner of the Airfield Cafe in Northampton. Um, and, but what he was saying is that the, the issues for him are really the food, the cost, the price of food. He was giving me some numbers and this is a few weeks old now since I last talked to him, but he was saying that a case of eggs used to be cost him $15. And a few weeks ago, he paid 57, you know, a, a case of chicken was $38. And now it's $133 for that same amount of chicken. So he's looking at food costs at the same time. Uh, it's summer, 
And there's a mentality that, you know, people are going back to restaurants. Uh, you know, there's, there's very few masking, obviously, around the state. People are kind of uh, abandoning some of the caution they showed the last two years. They're going to restaurants. So from restaurant owners' perspective, the, game, the name of the game now is to just uh, serve as, as many people as possible to make up for those food costs and those labor costs. And so that's kind of what is meant when, when I say that, uh, you know, this is the busy season, it really is. And this is, this is the, the time for them to kind of try to close those gaps uh, and make that profit. Speaking of changing how businesses and communities work through COVID, uh, going over to some zoning friction between towns and churches leads to legal challenges and legislation. This has been this is something that was surprising that popped up during COVID is uh, small community churches would just end up in random buildings or they would be in people's homes and things like that. And oh, boy, New Hampshire zoning laws don't always play nice with such things going on. Yeah, so I should just to set the stage, uh, the governor signed a bill the beginning of this month that would override zoning ordinances that are deemed to prohibit, regulate or restrict the use of land that's primarily for religious purposes. So essentially, it would uh, prevent towns from using their zoning ordinances to stop churches from being built or from operating. Uh, And this kind of this has an interesting background. There's been a lot of uh, cases, local cases, where there is tension because a church group um, decides to start services on a property that's not traditionally a church. Uh, one case that I looked at that's still ongoing, there's still a legal dispute right now, is in Bedford. Um, right in March 2020 in Bedford, uh, you know, right at the outset, I believe actually it was a week after the first lockdown um, um, kicked in, there's a group called the New Hope Christian Fellowship, and they began holding services in their living room uh, of, of a house that they would eventually wanted to convert into a church, but it was a residential home. Uh, and now in those early days, they started out on Zoom, but they, uh, you know, the intention was to have this be a physical space. And since then, they, they, uh, you know, after after the early lockdowns, they started having people meet in person. They also had a plan to to expand their church, um, but the town of Bedford eventually sent them a cease and desist order about 18 months after they started, um, arguing that they hadn't got the occupancy permits required in order to use that residential home as a church. Uh, And that has gone to the courts. The the church is saying that, uh, you know, this is a a violation of freedom of of religion and and other violations. and that case had been ongoing. It wasn't looking too good for the church. The, the courts had in an early preliminary decision sided with the town. That's still going on. But now there's a law that the governor signed this month that would effectively override decisions by zoning boards like in Bedford to use um, their zoning laws to stop churches from operating. So it's a pretty sweeping law. It's going to be very interesting to see how it affects towns. This is just one case example. And, you know, this is still in mediation, this case. Uh, We don't know what the impact of this new law is. But the law was pushed by lawmakers, Republican lawmakers, who uh, argue that churches have been unfairly uh, um, pushed out um, by some of these zoning laws. 
It's a very complex situation. You can kind of, as an outsider, see it from both sides. On one side, it's very much a First Amendment issue and could very easily cause a, a, a jurisdiction to have substantial lawsuits and ending up in federal court, which is tremendously expensive. And guess what? If you end up the U.S. Supreme Court nowadays, they're very, very likely to side with the religious organization based off of the conservative court that we currently have there with five conservative justices sitting uh, and on the other side, you can kind of see from the local jurisdiction that there's liability and noise ordinance risks. There's all sorts of things where you're upsetting the neighbors and then you're causing problems with the housing market in the area because now you have this church that's maybe outgrown the property, but there's no way to restrict it anymore. Yeah. And so there's caveats to this. So it doesn't stop any zoning uh, and being applied by the town to a church. Uh, there are, uh, you know, there are a number of things the towns can still regulate. Uh, they can regulate the height of the structure, the yard size, the lot area, you know, the setbacks, the building coverage requirements, as long as those same regulations are also applied to non-religious buildings. Um, that's what the law states. But there are a number of uh, other zoning laws that don't apply to churches according to this new law, other zoning ordinances that a town might have that, that might not apply now. And so the municipal association, which represents towns, um, is opposed, was opposed to this law moving ahead and has said that it will, it could give, you know, religious um, organizations an advantage over other uh, uses of property that would not be allowed. Um, That's what they argue. Of, of course, the supporters of the bill argue it's a religious freedom um, issue. Complex. <laughs> and this is something likely that'll be, uh, be sorted out in, over the next couple of years, especially if it ends up hitting any of the courts. Because if, as we've talked about extensively on this program and my show, The New England Take, zoning in the state of New Hampshire is very complex as business implications, residential implications. They tend not to change very often because people don't want to see their community change when maybe it should, maybe it shouldn't. And there, there's so many stakeholders in all of this. And when you throw in a, a constitutional right in the middle of it. Oh, you you want to be careful how much you throw out there because you could end up changing case law that affects generations to come. So interesting yeah. to follow that for sure. Uh, move over here for the last five minutes to talk about. So it looks like Governor Sununu is creating a voluntary accreditation program for New Hampshire police departments, an extension of uh, one of the, of the conversations that happened around the Lee Act Commission a couple of years ago. Yeah, so this is a, a process. Uh, the governor, um, it, this had been set up uh, earlier. The, the executive council uh, back in January approved um, $100,000 in federal funding to help the Police Standards and Training Council, which is the entity that trains all police officers, all law enforcement officers in the state um, to design an accreditation process. The idea here is that this is a process by which police departments can um, get uh, up to speed, get their policies up to speed with a national standard and be vetted by the Police Standards and Training Council, but also by this commission that's being created um, that will kind of look to see whether they're actually using best practices 
for uh, you know their policies, whether they even have policies. Um, it's a voluntary program, so a police department does not have to be accredited. Uh, they can keep doing business as usual. I think the idea is that they may feel pressure from their communities to be accredited. They, they may be uh, you know, sort of um, asked to by uh, the select boards or, or whatever the case may be. Um, so this is an option, to, it, but it's very much voluntary. Uh, and so this commission that the governor um, created through executive order includes a number of representatives. Uh, there's members of the House and the Senate, the Attorney General's office. There are three members of the New Hampshire Association of Chiefs of Police. And then there's a member from the New Hampshire Sheriff's Association, as well as a representative from a college or university and a member of the public. So there's a lot there. As you could probably hear, there, are, there is a law enforcement presence on the accreditation commission. Um, it's not the overwhelming presence, but there, there definitely are, uh, you know, law enforcement officials who are able to vet the other departments in the state. So it'll be interesting to see what standards they come up with to uh, judge departments when this and, gets started. And it makes a lot of sense to have something like this. I, as someone who grew up in Maine, I mean, there were very few police departments for local towns. And when I moved to New Hampshire and my first town I lived in was Epsom, which is kind of small. It's got the main route that goes through it, but that's about all that's going on in Epsom. And I'm like, Oh, there's police cars that say Epsom on it. It's, it's, it, it was a culture shock for me. And to have all these small police departments that maybe just have a couple or up to a couple dozen police officers uh, part-time and full-time involved with them to, to especially post George Floyd, where everyone's a lot more aware of what their rights are when it comes to interacting with police. It makes a lot of sense. And there may also be some insurance uh, reasons to, to get an accreditation like this and to look good. And if you do get sued, you go to the court and say, Hey, we, we were light, we're accredited on there. We, we did our due diligence. Uh, this one, officer did something they weren't supposed to please don't take down the whole police department because of it yeah one thing that i think um is was pretty uh astonishing for me to find out there is a national certification um program it's called the commission on accreditation for law enforcement agencies and only 17 police departments in the granite state in new hampshire are currently accredited through that so that, that has been that has existed uh, as an opportunity, but few departments have have taken it. One, when I talked to John Skippa, who's the director of the uh, Police Standards and Training Council, uh, he said that the national accreditation, there's a lot of hoops to jump through and that that can be difficult uh, financially for some of these districts. So the idea behind the state accreditation program is it's creating an alternative that will still use national standards, but that will be maybe um, easier to work with, uh, you know, a central state uh, organization like the Police Standards and Training Council, and also this new commission that's made up of all of these entities, and that that'll be an easier, maybe an easier bar to clear while still delivering accountability. Um, again, it remains to be seen how they des devise, design this, and, uh, you know, I'm going to be watching that closely. But it is notable that few departments have used the existing program today.
if if I had to guess, there's a little bit of also I don't trust a national organization because it's New Hampshire. Like maybe we're more we they may be a little more likely to trust something that comes down from that John Skippa is involved with the people that actually trained their officers because New Hampshire is not New York. It's a it's a different population, different uh, population densities and everything. So it, it'll definitely be interesting to see what they do with this accreditation standards as they work on that coming forward. All right, reporter Ethan Dewitt over the New Hampshire Bulletin. Thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. NewHampshireBulletin.com to get all their articles. I'll also link uh, the articles we discussed in this uh, this edition of WKXL in the morning at NHTalkRadio.com as, long, as well as the podcast version of the show. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead. We'll be right back after this.